This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I thought I heard your voice from around that mountain of papers that's on my desk. It's a little bit difficult to, you know, see each other amid the teetering stacks of paperwork and podcast paraphernalia that are cluttering up the space, but you know, we've gotten the year 2022 put to bed. We'll do a little bit of New Year's cleaning to clear things out. Hopefully we won't need an army of bureaucrats to do it, but maybe we can enlist the help of our fearless producer, Jonathan. I really don't want to heap any more work on poor Jonathan's shoulders. He's got enough to worry about as it is. Listeners, we are going to be delving into the world of bureaucracy with this week's episode. We're going to be talking about a pretty interesting double feature the 1952 Akira Kurosawa masterpiece, Ikiru, is going to be paired with its 2022 remake, Living. And hopefully we won't need to file this report in triplicate, but listeners, we hope that you'll join us in episode 365 of Seeing and Believing. From when I was a child, what I wanted was to be a gentleman. Life just crept up on me, one day preceding the next. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Williams. Not happy, not unhappy. A small wonder I didn't notice. Mr. Williams, Doctor, I'll see you now. The results have come back. It's never easy, this. Well, Sarah, after putting the year of our Lord 2022 to bed last week with our best of the year list, it is kind of, it is back to the seeing and believing grind. I don't want to say that we're, you know, a tedious bureaucracy over here <laughs> in the recording booth, but it is kind of time to get back into a routine after the the mammoth episode last week. I personally like mining in the movie mines. Um, I don't know <laughs> about you, but that in and out and that routine and that going and seeing a bunch of movies week in and week out and then getting to talk about them. I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't call it a bureaucracy thing, but maybe we can consider all of those letterboxed reviews to be, you know, the paperwork that we have to keep filing and checking and you got to make sure that you get it in the right format. Well, we're giving the hard sell to our listeners for sure, uh, likening <laughs> the podcast to bureaucracy or coal mining. So, you know, Pick your poison. We're going to strap on our headlamps here in a second to talk about kind of an interesting double feature this week. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the Bill Nye starring film Living, which happens to be the English language remake of the Akira Kurosawa masterpiece, Akiru. So we're just going to kind of combine those into a single segment this week just to go over the ways they're similar, the ways they're different, and kind of... Uh, explore that together. So I'm looking forward to that. Before we do, though, I do kind of want to share uh, some listener feedback because we did have the big episode last week mm -hmm. and a lot of listeners had some thoughts about uh, about what we had to share on that episode. Jonathan from Central Texas uh, was overjoyed to hear that you and I had 
after Yang at our joint number one. Makes me he, happy. He writes in saying, you have no idea how much it warmed my heart to hear that after Yang made number one for both of you. A trait that he happens to share with Dave Lester, who wrote in to, to say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Jonathan continues, like you two, I found that the film made an indelible impression the very first time I viewed it. And three subsequent revisits have only solidified it as one of those rare films that I know I will revisit often and find new depths in for many, many years to come. I particularly love how Sarah highlighted the way Koganada pulls out literally every tool in the filmmaker's tool belt to make that happen, especially with the cinematography. So props to Sarah for calling that out. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan had a lot more to say about some other of his favorite films. Uh, we can't go into all of them here, but I especially wanted to highlight three films that he said were uh, big favorites of his. He wanted to highlight Poser, kind of a social media information age satire. He wanted to highlight the documentary Bitter Brush. And then finally, the love story uh, titled A Love Song that's uh, starring Dale Dickey and Wes Studi. And mm. uh, a film that I actually uh, haven't seen any of those three. Same. I've, I saw trailers for A Love Song and it looked like a, a nice, uh, quiet indie film, but I just didn't have the time to catch up with it in the year-end crunch. So thanks, Jonathan, for giving me a little nudge to, to maybe nut, put that up higher on my watch list. Yeah, I really appreciate those recommendations. I also haven't seen any of those three movies, so feels like 2022 may be behind us, but there's always going to be additional movies that we just never got the chance to catch up with. And the nice thing is there's a watch list for that. There's also <laughs> the opportunity to just go back in time a little bit and revisit those films that we may have missed. So I know I'm putting those on my own personal watch list anyway. We also heard from listeners over on Twitter. So every week I like to ask a question on Twitter using the Seeing and Believing official Twitter handle. And this week, since we were covering Kurosawa's Ikiru and Living, we just said, we want to know what's your favorite remake. And Kevin, we got some really good picks from our listeners. So uh, Twitter user Wonkatania responded with The Departed and The Birdcage, if English language takes on foreign language film count, which, I mean, since we're talking about Living and Ikiru, I feel like that qualifies. I haven't seen the Birdcage either version, and I haven't seen the film that The Departed is a remake of, but I've heard that I need to rectify that immediately. I've heard they're both great films. We're in the same boat there as well. Uh, Ron Sturry wrote in to say, well, it has been remade three times, so it must be good, but I was impressed by Lady Gaga's performance in A Star is Born, specifically the 2018 hmm. version. Also, as a Stieg Larsson fan, he's very fond of both versions of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is another one of those pairs of movies where I've seen the original this time. I have not seen the English language remake. Uh, I mean, uh, I'll, the less said about my opinions on The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the better. <laughs> wasn't a big fan of the Fincher version. Didn't really make me eager to check out the original. I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe I should, and then we can argue about it on air, potentially. <laughs> we also heard from Abby Olchesi, who said, All iterations of The Shop Around the Corner, namely In the Good Old Summertime and You've Got Mail. Everyone enhances the existing story to work for its period. It's like different variations on a classic recipe. Yeah, those are some great solid picks as well. Mm -hmm. um, we also heard from Kyle Hip, who just said Ocean's Eleven enough said. And Elijah Davidson wrote in to say, if we're talking about loving the original and then also how it was remade, his answer is 12 Monkeys. But if we're talking about the films we love the most that are remakes, then his answer is Some Like It Hot. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Good okay. pick. Good Interesting. Pick. So, uh, Kevin, what about you? Do you have a favorite remake? Well, I'm going to join Kyle Hip in uh, singing the praises of Soderbergh's ability f- with remakes. It's not going to be the Ocean's Eleven remake, but rather his remake of Solaris. Yes. And... One of my criteria for answering this question was thinking, okay, well, what's a, an example of a film that was really good in its original iteration and was just as good, if not better, with its remake? Because it's no trick to take a bad movie and, and you know, make it better. Mm-hmm. It's really tough to take a masterpiece and make another masterpiece in the remake version. So <laughs> yeah. uh, Sturberg Solaris is great for different reasons, but it's still great from yeah. the original. I completely agree with you. Soderbergh Solaris is probably one of my all-time favorite movies, actually, not just one of my favorite remakes. But when I was thinking about this question, um, the first pair of movies that popped into my head were the 1950s and the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I specifically love the 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it kind of transposes the original into a completely different mood in a way that makes you really get a really good sense for the paranoia that all of these characters are feeling. Um, It's a very 1970s movie. And I mean that in the highest, like as the highest praise possible, it just feels like it could not have been made in any other year, in any other decade. And so that on top of the interpretation of the story is why I love that movie and that specific remake. It's a good movie for sure. I need to go back and see the 1950s version of Body Snatchers because I I am a fan of the overall premise, and I'm curious to see what different eras make of the same story. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's definitely worth seeking out. It's also a good movie, um, but the 78 one has my heart. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that would be a good segue, I guess, to move into our discussion of living in Akiru. Mm-hmm. Um, Akiru, of course, uh, being the Kurosawa fanboy that I am, I have a, a special place in my heart for for that film. It's that that's the one that has my heart. But I was really interested in Oliver Hermanus's remake that was coming out at the end of 2022. I had it as one of my most anticipated films when we did that preview episode a few months ago, and I was really interested in it for a couple of reasons. One of which was uh, Kazuo Ishiguro taking up the screenwriter's pen. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's jump into this discussion because there's a lot to talk about. Both of these films, of course, tell the story of an aging bureaucrat played in the Kurosawa original by Takashi Shimura and by Bill Nye in Oliver Hermanus's remake, who, after discovering that he has terminal stomach cancer, has to grapple with his regrets over wasted time the ultimate meaning of his life and work, and what to do with the scant few months left to him. Along the way, he's alternately driven to self-pity and despair by the younger people around him who know nothing of his illness or his regrets, before finding purpose in the unlikeliest of places. Mm. So without getting into too many spoilers, the new remake is going to be many people's first encounter with this story, Mm -hmm. after all. Uh, Let's just say that this film isn't structured along the conventional lines one might initially suspect. So Sarah, uh, this is uh true of you you know you're new to this story you hadn't seen the original and of course we are both encountering the remake for the first time mm-hmm. so i'm really interested to get your thoughts on the way that this story is told in both versions and maybe the differences and similarities that each film has in dealing with that subject matter. What did you make of all that? Yeah, so when I was taking notes for, I can't even remember which version I was taking notes. Uh, It might have honestly been for both. Um, 
the movie hits a turning point. And that's about as far as I'm going to say, because I do want listeners who have not encountered either of these movies to go in perfectly fresh. Um, The movie hits a turning point and I wrote down, this is such a weird plot structure and I love it um, because I think it forces you to consider both the mental state of our protagonist, so um, Mr. Williams and Mr. Watanabe, respectively, in Living and in Ikiru, and the way that they approach life once they realize just how much of it they've wasted, and then also being forced to sort of grapple with their or the with that book with that composite character's legacy and the way that the movie both movies get at that is through a a structure that feels almost like three act but the perspective shifts a little bit in the first case it's really a a shift in perspective from pre-cancer diagnosis to post-cancer diagnosis and then also post making that change and deciding to take on a project that is going to give the rest of his life meaning, knowing that he only has a few more months to live. And that shift is a little bit jarring, I think, but it's a jarring sense that I found personally really welcome because it kind of shook me out of my complacency. I felt like I knew where this story was going once I hit about the halfway mark. And I was really not even pleasantly surprised. I was kind of blown away by how well both movies managed to both fulfill and subvert those expectations. And then also not try to give you a moral or a lesson or tell you explicitly how to live just to present how this specific character chooses to live, knowing the time that he has allotted for him, and to recognize that the pursuit that he's chosen is something that is really small. At one point, he explicitly says, this is a small thing that will very likely go the way that all small things do. It's going to disappear. It's not going to be important. But it's important to the people who needed it to be important. And that's what really matters. And in both cases, I was really struck by how well each version and each telling of this movie was able to get that tone and tenor across despite their different settings. So... I'm curious to know, because I know you love Ikiru, did the remake Living do justice to that story that you already knew that you loved? And did it surprise you in any way? I mean, I was really excited about this film, but I did, I have to admit, go in with a little bit of trepidation because whenever you're making, remaking a a classic like Ikiru, you know, the gauntlet has been thrown, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you... it's not just telling a story. You also kind of have to justify in some way, well, okay, why does this need to be remade? What What is new? What are we doing that's new with this story? Or in in what ways are we going to open up possibilities that the other version didn't uh, explore itself? Mm. And I was I was pleasantly surprised by this film, actually, in that I feel like it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything particularly new with the story. I think that the basic outline of the plot in both versions is similar, but I found it intriguing how uh, living is much more of a straightforward kind of conventional drama. Mm. Uh, whereas going back and rewatching Akiru after having seen the remake, I was struck by how Kurosawa's version is much more, there, there's a, 
philosophical edge to it, I guess, where it's it's really trying to confront the viewer with with the questions about well, what would what would you do in this situation? <laughs> and not just sort of like a what would you like how would you imagine yourself in this situation, but literally what is the good thing to do? What is the good life? And it does that by kind of calling attention to its own artificiality in some ways. Like mm-hmm. there's an opening voiceover that essentially says, this is our protagonist. This protagonist has, you know, we're he's going to find out he is terminally ill. And look at this. This is what we're seeing right now isn't hardly even worth watching. This guy's almost dead already. And so it's very... Um, Almost jarring if you're kind of expecting a, a straightforward drama where the introductions are made a lot more organically. Mm-hmm. But it's very it, it's not done because Kurosawa is artless in his in his storytelling. It, it it's being done for a very specific purpose, and that is to call attention to the fact that this film is going to confront us, the viewer, with some questions, um, and we're going to answer them. We're mm-hmm. not just going to watch a story. Mm-hmm. Living is much more uh, told like more like a straightforward drama. There's a lot more attention paid to some of the secondary characters, which um, I don't think either is better or worse necessarily. I think they're both, they both have merits. Um, and I found it interesting how living kind of invited the viewer into the story, not from the perspective of contending with its questions, but more just uh, seeing these characters and being kind of, wrapped up in the dilemmas and choices they face. Hmm. So I don't know. I was, I was interested in that. I, I really appreciate that. Um, it's funny. So I watched Ikiru first, and then I saw Living the following night. So we kind of had opposite experiences with the remake at the very least. Um, and as I was watching the remake, I think I was struck by the difference in setting. So Ikiru, of course, is set in post-war Japan, 1950s Japan. And then Living is set in post-war London and the surrounding countryside. So 1953, I believe. So roughly the same time period. And what I was struck with was the different modes of filmmaking. Living even opens up with kind of the traditional credits before the movie even starts. You get the director, you get a lot of the other above-the-line credits before the story proper begins. Um, But at the same time, even though there's kind of a different mode, Ikiru is in black and white, very straightforward, very focused on blocking and process, and living is, is, like you'd mentioned, feels a little bit more like a conventional drama, and in terms of the filmmaking that's happening, it kind of feels like that too a little bit more of a floatier, like close up um, with the camera, a lot more lush colors, a little bit more soft focus. But at the same time, Living still manages to make homage to the individual shots in Kurosawa and kind of transpose them into their new setting in ways that I kept finding quite surprising. Like there are a couple of images that are almost complete direct exact quotes of the original movie. And in the context of the remake, they still make sense as we're quoting the original, but then they also feel as though they're kind of adding a little bit of an additional sense or feeling or it's still its own independent story, even though it is a very faithful remake. Um, I'm thinking specifically of a shot Shortly after Mr. Williams finds out that he's been diagnosed with his terminal illness and he's sitting in his living room and he's remembering his past and it isn't just his life that's flashing before his eyes, it's the life of his son. 
And the first shot that we see of that memory is of him and his son in the car from Mr. Williams's perspective. The camera is playing the role at the moment. And you can see the windshield wiper on the car and the hearse ahead of them starting to turn a corner. And his son is saying, Mom, mom's going away. We're going to lose her because we're not driving fast enough to keep up with her. That directly quotes Ikiru as well down to the same kind of windshield wiper that's wiping in the rain. And at the same time, I think the melancholy that inhabits living feels like it's much more about the individual pain that Mr. Williams is feeling, as opposed to the pain that Mr. Watanabe is feeling specifically for his son in the original. I, th I think it's two very different viewpoints on the same story, but at the same time, they feel simpatico with each other. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Well, tellingly, the those those flashbacks that we get of uh, Williams' past and living are all point-of-view shots. We're seeing these scenes as he would have seen them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Akiru, it's it's shot more like a conventional flashback where we, you know, we see Takashi Shimura mm -hmm. uh, made up to look a little bit younger. And so uh, it's it's a subtle shift, but it has the effect in living of, of very much kind of putting us in Williams' shoes and kind of inviting us to empathize with him a little bit more. And I think that carries through to the performance as well. Mm -hmm. I, I still slightly prefer Shimura. I mean, he's a uh, so national treasure. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like how um, both in his choices and maybe in, in the way he's been directed, um, Watanabe is... He's not as lovable, not as immediately uh, uh, sympathetic mm -hmm. as, as Williams is. Uh, he's a little bit, he seems a little bit more pathetic um, the, in his relationship with the, the young woman who kind of encourages him to um, be, you know, live life to the full a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, he's a little bit she caught, she describes him as creepy mm -hmm. in the in the Kurosawa version, and that's kind of justified in the way Shimura presents himself. Um, whereas um, Bill Nye's performance is a little bit um, more immediately sympathetic. He's not he he's still kind of a cold fish, so to speak. But he's also you you kind of you feel for him a little bit more. I think that's by design um, with the way that the stories kind of built up to be again much more of a drama where you kind of want your protagonist to be approachable in akira i think he's much more um there's more of a, a sense that kurosawa wants us to confront questions 
through Watanabe rather than putting ourselves in his shoes specifically. Mm. And I think that that's an interesting and subtle choice that points up the differences in approach here. And I think that they both have merits. I found myself watching the Kurosawa version after having seen the remake thinking, I kind of like the the starker approach that Kurosawa takes a little bit more. If I had to pick, they're both good, but there's something about Kurosawa's tactic that really brings home the the life or death stakes in a way that the the more conventional drama of Hermanus's version doesn't. I wonder if it's partly a pacing issue. Um, Kurosawa takes his time telling his version of the story. So Akira is two hours and 20 something minutes, whereas living is only about an hour 45. And at the same time, I think I'm going to give the edge to Akira here a little bit, but I really appreciated the reinterpretation of living in kind of a, a more emotional perspective, I think, um, particularly in the scenes where Mr. Williams has decided that he's going to sort of disappear for a few days and try to learn how to live because he's realized that he just doesn't know how to do it. So in the remake version, he disappears to kind of a seaside town. He runs into an author who's taken up residence sort of in a cafe, and the writer decides that he's going to show him the sights. They're going to go out and they're going to have a night on the town. They're going to enjoy themselves. But before they do that, the two men make a connection where the writer is looking for sleeping pills and Mr. Williams has sleeping pills and he has a lot of them. And the way the scene is played is just so straightforward that I felt it understated and kind of underlined the emotion there. And I think a lot of this has to do with the strength of Bill Maggie's performance because he is very good, especially in this scene. He takes the first bottle of pills out of his pocket or out of his bag and places it on the table in front of him. And the writer says, thank you, and takes them. And then Mr. Williams lines up four more bottles on the table in front of him. And they just kind of stand there like a statement. They kind of almost look like the papers that are piled up on his desk in his office that he should be in. And the two men just sort of sit and look at each other for just a second. And then Mr. Williams says, I thought about it. And then that's it. That's kind of, they kind of leave it at that. He just says, I contemplated it and it wasn't worth it for me. I I could not follow through. I had to learn how to live first. And it's just such a sad statement where he doesn't even know how to go about the business of living even as he's in the process of dying. And he also doesn't know how to die either. And I I felt my heart just breaking for him in that moment. And I think part of it was the line delivery. And then part of it was just the very straightforward, like slightly at an angle framing where you see these pill bottles lined up in front of him on the cafe table. And it's a statement and it's not really much more else, but the emotion really shone through. And I feel, I felt like I lost a little bit of that, in Ikiru because that scene happens, that corresponding scene happens in a bar and Watanabe is already already drunk at that point and kind of trying to feel his way into figuring out how to go about a night on the town. So it felt a little bit more straightforward than in the remake, um, at least in this specific scene. And I think it was because the emotion was underlined and it was there and there was nothing really in between me and it to shield me from what was really going on in the character's head. I mean, I do 
I do really like Nai a lot in this role. I and I like the the sequence with him and uh, Sutherland, the writer played by Tom Burke. I think Burke is wonderful in this yes. role. Um, and I, I think that the interesting thing about about Burke is that he's got kind of this this gentleness to him that his uh, corresponding character in the Kurosawa version doesn't. In the Kurosawa version, you get the sense that this kind of this writer is kind of like you know he's he's a hack and he's kind of just He's he's already kind of dissolute, whereas Burke is playing a similar type, but there's a gentleness in the way he deals with uh, Nai's character that makes that se- gives that scene a uh, sequence a warmth, I mm-hmm. guess that that isn't in the original. That I think is maybe emblematic of what's good about this remake is that. It does follow the original very closely, but the differences in performance are enough that you feel like it does kind of justify itself because it's playing different notes, mm-hmm. even as it's telling the same story. It's a variation on the on the same tune that's enchanting enough to, to make the case for itself. I wanted to ask you about some of those different notes because there were a few moments where as I was watching the remake, I noticed a detail that was very clearly a callback to the original, and I wasn't quite sure how to feel about them. I'm thinking specifically about a prop. Um, In Living, um, Bill Nighy's character manages to win a small, like, jumping bunny rabbit from an arcade game. And in the original, in Ikiru, his former co-worker who has left City Hall to go pursue another job uh, working in a factory making toys for children, um, she's making that exact same bunny rabbit. And it kind of felt a little bit artificial to me, just having that same prop show up in the remake and then also in the original. At the very least, they were in different contexts, but I don't know, it kind of felt like it was pointing out, hey, this is still the same story that we're telling. It felt a little Easter eggy to me, um, which not not there not that there's any necessarily anything wrong with that. I didn't find a whole lot of meaning in in that callback, other than that, like, hey, we're you know, yeah, we we've seen Akiro too, you know, which is you know, it, it's it's fine, it's whatever. But I I don't know that I found a whole lot of deeper meaning in in that recurrence either. I feel like I was trying to find deeper meaning in the recurrence, and then it didn't show up. And I I suppose it's because the bunny rabbit in the original does have some form of deeper meaning. It's kind of the impetus for Mr. Watanabe to return back to City Hall and to start doing the work that he's doing because his former co-worker says she makes these bunny rabbits in the factory and in a way it kind of connects her to every single child in Japan because she's able to create a toy that they can all like love and appreciate. And in the remake, it just kind of sits there, and it's it's sort of a prize to be it, won. It, it's well, it's literally a prize that he yeah. wins in the in you know like one of those claw games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know, like I felt like I was hunting or, or fishing or something, like maybe trying to grab with a claw some sort of a meaning. And I feel like I'm trying to bring meaning to this prop that doesn't really exist. So I I did find that a little bit distracting. Some of the other details, though that did feel like callbacks that were a little bit more organic. Um, 
there's a lot of mirrors in the remake. And there are a lot of mirrors that are kind of propped up on the wall above the characters' heads looking down at whatever it is that they're doing. There's a very specific mirror in the original in Ikiru that shows the hands of a pianist as as he's playing in one of the bars that Mr. Watanabe visits. And I think I was struck by just the proliferation of all of these other mirrors in the remake because they're all kind of symbols of all of these other characters going about their day, going about their business, thinking through the appearances that they must keep up as as they are going through that business. And I think a lot of the bureaucracy that Mr. Williams deals in is the kind of work where it's important to appear busy. You have to have a skyscraper of papers in front of you on your desk, otherwise people won't think that you're important. But the actual productivity never happens. And that's kind of what's going on in that mirror version of everybody as well. They look like they're doing something, but because it's in a mirror, there's actually nothing of substance that's being produced. So that felt like an an additional piece that I really appreciated that I didn't quite get in the original. See, it's interesting because uh, in the original, I appreciated the framing of of the bureaucracy a, a little bit more than in in the remake, mm. um, mainly because in, in the remake, uh, Ishiguro definitely has an, has a novelist's instinct for flushing out all of his characters for for making sure that. Um, not just the protagonist, but the supporting players as well feel like plausible human beings and not just plausible human beings, but like people who have lives outside of the frame of the story. Um, and I appreciated that in this remake, we do get a better sense for the bureaucrats who work in the same office as Mr. Williams. There's, you know, kind of a, a person, a young man who's new to the office, who's kind of has to learn the the ins and outs of being a good bureaucrat, which <laughs> means being not all, you know, being just good enough at your job to, you know, look busy, but not, you know, actually make a difference. Um, and the other uh, veterans who are learning at Williams's feet to uh, look busy while doing as little as possible. Um, and as the film goes on, we kind of, get to know most of them a little bit better. And in the second half of the film where there's uh, the, the film makes a turn and ends the characters that we focus on aren't the ones we would necessarily expect. We see the bureaucrats in Kurosawa's version are kind of very silly, ridiculous, um, pathetic in their turn. Whereas in living, you get the sense that, it they're they're all kind of they're good chaps so to speak <laughs> and i i think it's in, even though they kind of end up in a similar place at the end of the film i appreciated how kurosawa had no quarter for <laughs> for the bureaucrats in his film that they they are kind of clowns at the end of the film and he's content to leave them there mm-hmm. whereas living has a has a gentler touch with them and again it's not so much a question of better or worse but I did kind of appreciate the spikiness in in Ikiro a little bit more. I mean, it's that spikiness I think that make, gives the original the edge for me. It's just I I like how it it just it's confrontational about what it's the story it's telling, the themes it's it's laying out, and the questions it's asking of the viewer. I appreciate how it doesn't it doesn't soften itself to make it more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that 
especially in the context of this story where it's a, it's a literal matter of life and death. And in the end, the meaning that one person finds in their life and the difference that they make might in the end be very insignificant and they mm. might be forgotten. And yet there's still, there, there's something there that's transcendent. I don't know. I appreciate the, the edges in Kurosawa's film. Yeah. It, it feels like he's not giving any quarter to his own characters, but he's not really giving much of a quarter to the audience either. I didn't feel implicated necessarily watching Akiru, but I did feel challenged. And by challenged, I mean, challenged in the good way, challenged in a way that kind of made me think and examine my own position in my own life and in the work and the business that I conduct as well. Um, Living feels a little bit more like a comfort. And I think sometimes you do need that kind of a comfort. But I I agree with you there. I think Kurosawa gets just barely the edge, but he does get the edge for me as well. It's it's a difference, I think, about making uh, its protagonist a hero and making him... like I feel like there's a heroic quality to Williams hmm. in living that isn't quite there in, in Ikiru. It's Watanabe is admirable is he is he heroic i don't know i don't know if i would if i would go that far kurosawa doesn't call him a hero kurosawa right. explicitly says this is our protagonist and i think that word choice is very very deliberate as well yeah i think there's that that quality there that makes it understandable why akira was sort of stood the test of time for me i guess uh, i guess I, i'm curious to know in, in the final analysis since you were coming to akira for the first time this wasn't a revisit for you mm-hmm. uh what what did you make of that i mean it's an incredible movie it's it's so good to sit down and start a movie and know that you're in the hands of a master. And I feel like I said that when we talked about Kurosawa's high and low a couple of months ago as well. And it's nice to have that reiterated. Like every single time I come and enjoy a story by Kurosawa, I know that I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to have a difficult time. I'm going to have a challenging time. And at the same time, um, I'm willing to go wherever it is that he's going to take me because he's not going to pull his punches and he's not going to try to pat me on the head or um I don't know I don't know I don't feel like he feels the need to console his audience I think he feels the need to confront his audience and to present a good story to them and being a good storyteller means not pulling your punches necessarily um I keep coming back to one of the earlier introductory scenes in Akiru where this group of women have come to petition city hall to get um a cesspool filled in so that they can have a playground for their children and a safe place in in their neighborhood. And they're kind of given the runaround by all of the different bureaucrats. And instead of showing these women go through the motions and talk to everybody in turn, we only get their point of view as they're being turned away and passed off to another department. So you, it, it's it's literally just a series of men and women facing the camera and saying, oh, I'm not the person who's going to be able to help you. You want sewage over there. And then sewage turns to the camera and says, oh, we can't help. You need to talk to Parks first. And just going on down the line, I think it's a good five minutes long of a sequence of just, you. we can't help you. Here's somebody else who can help under the guise of helpfulness. But you can tell that Kurosawa really does not care for people who are willing to do this to others. And he's also not going to let us off the hook either. And I, I don't know, like 
that level of spikiness that you were talking about, whenever you call Ikiru spiky, in some cases, I'm thinking of Mr. Watanabe, but I'm really also just thinking about the environment that he comes from and the environment that he's comfortable in and has sort of been fostered by and also has helped to foster. And I think about the way that Kurosawa presents that problem as something that's sort of accreted over time into a system that cannot be broken by just one person anymore. And that, I think, is the thing that makes Ikiru so devastating, is that despite Mr. Watanabe's ostensible change of heart and shift in the way that he's going to conduct his life and business for as long as he can in the short time that he has left, that small change is still a very small change and it may not necessarily even take. And I find that deeply upsetting and devastating and also makes me wonder, what am I allowing to slip by and what am I pushing (laughs) off on somebody else? Because they can do the job better than I can. I I think that that uh, what you're describing in your reaction to that sequence, I think, is something that Kurosawa does a lot, especially in his earlier films. Like I think of Rashomon, mm-hmm. how the the testimony of each participant in in that uh, in the crime that kicks off the main action of Rashomon, how it's presented as the audience is situated essentially from the point of view of the the judges listening to this testimony mm-hmm. um and the Im- implicit in that shot choice in the way kurosawa frames us uh looking through the eyes of the judge is he's asking us to judge he's asking us to react um he's he's asking us to be participants in the situation um in living that that same sequence um the point of kind of a audience surrogate character the the newbie the new bureaucrat Mm -hmm. escorts the women around and we get a much more conventional like watching the women get these answers from all the bureaucrats while the young bureaucrat uh, who's escorting them kind of stands shamefacedly in the background kind of embarrassed and it's it's a fine sequence but it's got a very different ethos behind it than just simply presenting like essentially putting us in these women's shoes looking through their eyes as bureaucrat after bureaucrat tells them no it's not my job go over here and just gives them the runaround kurosawa wants us to feel that frustration and i think he accomplishes it through little directorial moves like that Mm -hmm. yeah well, uh, that is our review of both Living and Ikiru. Yes. So uh, you got a double feature this week. Thanks for listening, listeners. We are going to be back to kind of the more standard seeing and believing format with next week's episode. Sarah, we're going to be checking out uh, the new film from Jafar Panahi, No Bears. Yes. Really looking forward to checking that. I've liked Panahi's last few films, so this ought to be a good one as well. Or, well, it should. I hope it's a good one. We'll, <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm excited to check this one out. I feel like uh, this might become a January tradition where we watch an Iranian movie that may or may not be potentially devastating. And I'm really hoping that No Bears fits the bill there. Listeners for the watch list, we are going to be pairing No Bears with All That Jazz, which is probably not like the most intuitive <laughs> double feature, but I promise both of these films have some thematic uh, commonalities that 
will they'll draw out of each other for sure. I'm looking forward to hearing you unpack the galaxy brain connections that you <laughs> made between those two films in next week's episode. We're back to the regular watch list. We're back to Sarah's galaxy brained uh, double feature pairings. And back. I, for one, am very excited about that. Back into the seeing and believing coal mines, everyone. <laughs> but that does it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.